Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Assistant Professor of Music and the Humanities, Jessica Baker, from the Department of Music. Professor Baker is an ethnomusicologist, and she researches music of the Black Atlantic, mostly in the Caribbean. She also teaches world music classes and other classes related to music, dance, and the African diaspora. Professor Baker is here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Jessica Baker. It's so great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Jessica, can you give me a general overview of your career path, beginning in your undergraduate years all the way to your current role at the University of Chicago? Yeah, I was a music major at Bucknell University. At some point, I decided that I wanted to be an opera singer or at least a vocal performer of some sort. And so I got a degree in vocal performance. And during college, I was singing all over the place. I was in an opera company. I was a director of an acapella group. I was writing my own music and just spending a lot of time around music. And at some point toward the end, maybe around the end of my junior year, I took a class about music and protest and, you know, it really kind of opened my eyes to the idea that I could think about music from another angle, from an angle outside of performance. And I decided I wanted to go to grad school and I applied to four graduate programs and I chose the one that was honestly closest to my parents in New York City. I went to the University of Pennsylvania because Philadelphia was close and I became really interested in thinking about my own heritage as someone uh, with family from the Caribbean. And so I started a PhD in ethnomusicology. And, you know, to be really honest, I don't know that I knew exactly what ethnomusicology was when I started the doctoral program, but I knew that it would allow me to ask a lot of questions and to read a lot of books and to think really broadly about music in a way that I hadn't before. And I, I spent six years finishing a doctorate and was really fortunate to get a postdoctoral appointment at Rutgers University doing a seminar in, about archipelagos. And so as someone thinking about the Caribbean, I was hanging out with a lot of people from all different disciplines thinking about the archipelago as a concept. And it was a postdoc in critical Caribbean studies. So I had I was really fortunate to go from a music department to another music department to something completely outside of a music department. So I was able to think about so many other topics that I didn't even know existed. And then from there, I got my first uh, academic job, which is the one I still have at the University of Chicago back in a music department. But luckily at the University of Chicago, it's such an interdisciplinary place that I've been able to continue to think so widely about what it is that I do. And Jessica, I think a lot of people obviously have heard music, listened to music, enjoy music, and have even listened to a lot of Caribbean music. So can you explain what it means to research music for your career and what particular types of music you're researching and why? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the idea that everyone listens to music or, you know, has heard music or, you know, has a connection to music in some way. And so as someone who believes in the humanities, who believes in, you know, like humanistic endeavor endeavors as telling us something about, you know, who we are and what the world is and where we've been and where we can go as a society, I think music is really central to so much of that, to the idea of memory making, tradition, how we relate to each other. 
And so that's, you know, why I study music. And music of the Caribbean, for me personally, was a connection to all those kinds of ideas about heritage, ancestry, my own history and family as a woman, as a person of color. But then thinking about the Caribbean more broadly in the history of the world, I think that the Caribbean is such a central place in like modern society. It's a place that was, you know, founded on these ideas of traveling through the world, of trying to create new spaces, the notion of creolization and coming up with new things. So pretty broadly, I think that the Caribbean is a place that really embodies so many of the ideas that are important to contemporary society. So thinking about music and the Caribbean together for me is such an interesting way of getting at what makes the world what it is right now and how we can see that as like a process that's happened over time. And Jessica, just to step back in time a little bit, you mentioned your interest in becoming an opera singer at one point. I wonder if there were other things that you wanted to be when you were a kid. Yeah. Well, you know what? I am the daughter of two Caribbean immigrants who came to the new came to New York in the early 1970s. And my choices for what my parents thought it was okay for me to be were rather slim, right? You know, I could be an engineer. I could be a doctor. What kind of doctor was pretty open to them. But the idea that, you know, there were other choices of what you could aspire for, it was really foreign to me, honestly, until I was fully grown. So I didn't really think about what I wanted to be, just that I had to achieve something. And what kind of student were you in your middle and high school years? And I wonder, was there some pressure on you to be a good student? Yeah, I was a great student in middle school, a not so great student in high school. That was a transition from a really diverse public school in the Bronx to a predominantly white private school in high school. And that was a really hard transition for me. And I think my grades really suffered because of some of the social things that come with being in a really different environment. But of course, there was a lot of pressure to to do well. And at some point, I realized that the pressure wasn't so much from my parents, but also from my peers, that when you end up in a kind of elite, quote unquote, space where everyone's going to a fancy college and 14-year-olds are already really stressed about where they're going to go, what they're going to be and how they're going to, you know, achieve. I took on a lot of that stress in high school, even though my, you know, my transcript doesn't necessarily reflect that. So now that you study music and music is such a huge part of your life, what kind of music did you listen to when you were a teenager? I listened to a lot of hip hop and pop when I was a teenager but also quite a bit of reggae and calypso, what my parents were listening to. I had a pretty eclectic style. I discovered the Beatles in high school, and that was like, you know, a big moment for me. A lot of Bob Marley as well. I had a really broad range of musical interests and also creating my own music, just experimenting with sound more more generally. So when you look back on those memories of yourself from high school, does it make sense to you that you became the professor that you are today. Yeah, it does. And not so much because of the topic, but because I think being a professor provides me with the lifestyle that makes sense for who I am. That it became really clear to me, even by the time I was 18, that being in an office from nine to five was not going to work for who I was, that I needed every day to be different, that I was really easily bored. I needed things to feel like kind of a puzzle to me. 
I wanted to be around interesting people. I wanted to choose what I did and have a lot of autonomy over what my days look like and spend a lot of time with things that I thought were meaningful. And so I, I feel really grateful that I've chosen a career path that has allowed me to do that. Because more than knowing what I wanted to do, I was it was really clear to me what I did not want. And Jessica, you mentioned that difficulty that you went through transitioning from middle school to high school and being in this elite, predominantly white space. And I have to say, you know, academia is that it's it's a predominantly white space from what I understand and, and can be especially so at some of these elite institutions. So I wonder how you navigated that and if if that presented any obstacles or challenges for you to overcome in your career. For sure. It's been, yeah, it's been a challenge being, in most cases, the only Black person or, you know, the only woman or one of very few women of color in spaces, in classes, at conferences, etc. I will say that I've had really wonderful mentorship. I've had advisors like Tim Raman at Penn who were just really aware of the fact that this would be a challenge for me. So they weren't shying away from it. They weren't pretending that it wasn't happening. We were really facing these issues head on. And I felt really open to talk about what I was experiencing. And I felt like I always had a space to talk about what was happening and to come up with ways of addressing it and to have people just really reminding me, you belong here. You are allowed to be here. And what you have to say is really different than what other what others are offering, but it is valuable because of that. And so I've just been really fortunate to to have people really hyping me up, honestly. Who are the people that you think have been really instrumental to your success? So Tim Robin, like I mentioned, he was really influential or continues to be really influential. I think a doctoral advisor is kind of a lifelong thing where you just continue to lean on someone who knows you really well and understands the way that your brain works and the way that you tackle research. Annie Randall was a professor at Bucknell, and she's the one who taught the music and protest class I mentioned earlier, who was also really instrumental in recognizing that there was something more in me in performance and that I felt really stifled by performance. I had really wonderful teachers who I think believed in me as a performer, but who weren't as invested in the idea of just kind of like intellectual thought, critical inquiry in general. And when I wanted to sing in Spanish, they were like, oh, I don't know about that. And when I wanted to sing, do a recital my junior year of only Black women composers, they were not so into that. And so it was really great to have Annie Randall, Professor Randall, be someone who encouraged that and who would slip me monograph about Black women musicians, about music in Africa, about music in Egypt and just show me that there was so much more. And then other professors at Penn, Professor Deborah Thomas, who is a wonderful anthropologist, a brilliant a Black woman who also studies the Caribbean, who talked about her creative pursuits on top of being a prolific writer and a wonderful professor, that she's a dancer and she creates documentaries and she crafts. And so just seeing that she was someone who did everything, who her desire like mine was to just be a maker and a doer in the world and that she was able to forge a path for herself that was just really inspirational to me. And Jessica, why did you want to become a professor or an academic? Firstly, I recognize that in my music 
degrees that there wasn't a lot of discussion about the kinds of musical knowledges or experiences that were integral to me and the people I knew growing up. And so the idea that real music or classical music was music of the Western art tradition was still pretty prevalent when I was in graduate school. And so it was really important to me to be able to recognize and really inquire about, be critical about the music that I was hearing, about calypso, about soca, about big drum music, about Afrobeat music, Black music, about hip hop, about double Dutch, that there was just so much sound around me that wasn't making its way into the canon, that wasn't being used as evidence to help us think about who we are as a society. And I felt like I had so much to say about that. And I, and I felt like obviously I needed the credentials for people to believe what I was saying, but also that I wanted to participate in these conversations. And then going back to what I was saying earlier about who I knew myself to be and what I didn't want. I didn't want to be in any kind of career where I had to clock in at a particular kind of time or where my projects didn't change, where I couldn't be sort of a self-starter and the one creating my own work. And so academia just really presented itself as just a flexible space to do the kinds of thinking that I wanted to do, to participate in the kinds of conversations I wanted to participate in with people who believed also in the power of intellectual discourse. And you mentioned a little bit about this, Jessica, but I wanted to dive more into when and how you decided that music of the Caribbean was something that you wanted to research and really dive into. I think I might have already been in in a doctoral program when I made the decision about where I exactly I would study. And this was kind of an amalgamation of, or, you know, kind of happened at the crossroads of a lot of different experiences. One of those experiences was that my father, who's also a musician, not necessarily professionally, but played music his whole life, received a CD of his own father's singing from 1962 when famed folklorist and, I guess, proto-ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax had recorded my grandfather in Nevis in 1962. This is not something that my father knew about. His father passed away when he was 13, shortly after the recording was created. And so he received this in the mail the summer before I went to graduate school. And it really opened my eyes to, A, the idea that my fa- my own family was part of, again, a rich intellectual heritage about music, that there were people who were studying the Caribbean and the music of the Caribbean seriously a long time ago. And that there was, it was like an archive to be updated, that I could really participate in something that was not only important to the general intellectual history, to ethnomusicology more broadly, but also to my own family. I've never seen a picture of my grandfather hearing those recordings when I was already grown was the first time I had heard his voice. I had heard stories about my family being really musical, but had no real evidence of it, except for my own propensity for being a singer and an instrumentalist. And so it was as much a kind of personal project about me and my family as it was a bigger project about adding to to an archive that I didn't even know existed. Thank you for sharing that. And can you tell me a little bit about the fieldwork that you've done as part of your research? Yes. So I've spent a lot of time just kind of bumming around St. Kitts and Nevis. I, Like I said, I decided on St. Kitts and Nevis because they were islands that people hadn't talked about quite a, very much and because that's where my family is from. And I was just really interested 
in what was happening in these tiny places that typically are subsumed within these larger discourses about the Caribbean, which is really an expanse of 3,000 miles, but we only really talk about two or three islands. So I spent a lot of time in St. Kitts going to various concerts, interviewing dozens of people, also on Nevis, moving between those islands. I've done some archival research in Trinidad, also in New York City and Toronto and Miami, which are other diasporic spaces where Caribbean immigrants tend to land. And in those spaces, I just spent a lot of time being with people. I think one of the interesting things about ethnography is that it ends up just being sort of like you living your life in another space around other people and then spending time trying to convert those experiences into writing. And so I've just sort of lived my life for several years, moving between these spaces, making contacts with people and trying to figure out how how they connect or how to talk about how these spaces and the sounds in these spaces connect with one another. And where do you find inspiration in the work that, that you do? Is that in other people's work? Is that in music itself? Where does that inspiration to continue to study, to continue to learn and share what you learn with the world come from? All of the above. I mean, I think as because one of obviously the big things that I do is teach. I teach a lot of undergraduates and I am so inspired by the ways that they find music to be meaningful. And, you know, one thing about music, of course, is that we continue to listen to music from a very long time ago and it continues to make new meaning for us. And so listening to, say, a recording from Mexico from the early 1900s and to have it mean something anew to a 19-year-old hearing it for the first time in 2021, it's just really inspirational for me. It just makes it so clear to me that music is something that happens in the moment. It's something that continues to spread out throughout time. And its meaning is something that's remade over and over again. And I'm so inspired by that because it continues to show me that there are new connections to be made. And that this idea of relational entanglement, that everything that's ever happened everywhere forever is related in some way to everything else. And that as academics, I'm really honored that I'm allowed to spend my time thinking about what those relations are, which can be meaningful to so many different people in all these, you know, in all these ways that are hard for me to anticipate until I'm talking to them about it. You know, I hope it doesn't sound too overly emotional, but I really am inspired by everything, by something, by music that I'm hearing in a car, you know, when I'm going down the road to like the weird music in elevators, you know, whatever a flight attendant may decide to sing, you know, on a Southwest airline where they're really kooky at the beginning of a flight, the song that they may sing to tell us about putting on their seatbelts. I just find that there's so much connection and, and meaning to be made in thinking about how these things relate throughout time. I'm curious what your goals are for yourself. I'd like to find a way to connect more people outside of academia to what's happening within the walls of the university or maybe vice versa. I just, I think that the idea that some conversations, some pieces of writing count and others don't is, I just, I don't think it's necessarily true. Right? And because I'm so interested in vernacular music and what regular, regular people are talking about and saying and the instruments they're using, I really, I think that it's possible for us to be having more robust conversations about what we want our world to look like if we're having conversations with a broader array of people. And I think that 
being a faculty member provides me with the resources to make those conversations happen, to bring bring together disparate groups of people, to be engaged towards something. And so that's one of my goals. For sure, another one of my goals is to just continue writing and making having my writing be accessible to people outside of academia, to be interesting, to think about how I may go back to my performance roots and combine that with the more scholarly research stuff that I'm doing now. So maybe those aren't really specific goals, but I think they're things that really animate the way that I'm thinking about my work moving forward. And what would you say are the most fun elements of your job? Definitely the travel. The the field work is a blast. And being around really smart people all the time, I think that is really fun. I just, it's, I can't really even anticipate the kinds of conversations that I'm going to have on a daily basis, hearing about what people are doing. And I just find that really invigorating. And just the teaching is fun. The teaching is super fun. I find myself, again, I have the opportunity of every year being around super young people. It allows me to stay on top of things that I've fallen outside of, like knowing what's happening on TikTok or like what's trendy. I'm making myself sound much older than I actually am. But it is really fun to be in contact with people or be constantly in conversation with people who are young and thinking in ways that I just wasn't when I was that age. And what would your advice be for someone who was interested in pursuing academia, specifically the humanities and maybe specifically music? The advice I'd have for someone thinking about academia or ethnomusicology is to think about what it is that you want for your own self, for your life. I think that um, for myself personally, in thinking about what I didn't want to do was really useful for me. Um, But that's because I understood, I think, something about how I worked, who I was, how my brain worked, how I was able to complete projects, um, what was motivating for me, what kinds of things made me feel good when I woke up every day. And I think that's really been sustaining for me or has allowed me to feel like I'm in a profession that does sustain me in a really holistic way. And I would encourage anyone thinking about any career path to think about themselves first and foremost. I think that it's really tempting to think about how much money you might make, or like statistics about how many jobs there are and your chances. And I don't know that those things are actually as useful when it comes um, down to the reality that any profession will be the thing that you wake up and have to do and sustain yourself with every day. But also, I would also encourage folks thinking about academia contemporarily to recognize that academia itself is changing. And so there are academics who are TikTok stars and who make YouTube videos and who are finding ways of converting what would have just been maybe an academic article in an obscure journal into content that a lot of different people are able to participate in and and engage with. And so I would think about academia as a very broad range of activities and ideas and pursuits that can look different for anybody. Thank you for that reflection. And Jessica, finally, what's the most gratifying part of your job? The most gratifying part of my job is connecting with people who see themselves in some way in the work that I'm doing or the things that I'm talking about. When I give talks at conferences or colloquia, I often have a lot of women of color 
you know, who are like, my, you know, my family's from the Caribbean and I didn't know this. Or my current research projects think about neurodivergence and ADHD, particularly Black women with ADHD. And people coming up to me and saying, I think I have ADHD and this really resonates with what I'm saying. It's really gratifying as someone who felt like I didn't necessarily recognize myself in the things I was reading, in the classes I was taking as an undergraduate. It is important to me that I am offering that to today's students, to a different kind of audience. And it is really gratifying to me to know that I am doing that and that people are offering feedback that something I'm trying to put out into the world is being received as such. I've been speaking with Assistant Professor Jessica Baker. Professor, thank you for your time. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Thanks for listening. 